me. Soon after the introduction of Protestantism in the Heidelberg region of Germany in 1546, the controversy between Lutherans and Calvinists broke out. And for years, especially under the elector Otto Heinrich, who reigned from 1556 to 1559, it raged with great violence until that is Frederick III came into power in 1559. And he adopted the Calvinistic view of the Lord's Supper. And he favored that side with all his princely power. He reorganized the Sapinez College as a theological school. And he put at its head in 1562, Zacharias Ursinus, who had adopted the Reform Opinions. In order to put an end to the religious disputes in his dominions, the prince determined to put forth a catechism and a confession of faith. And he laid the duty of preparing it upon Ursinus and upon a man named Caspar Olivianus. At the time, he was the professor of the University of Heidelberg. And he was also the court preacher of Frederick III. The catechism was completed in 1562 and placed before the German Synod in January 1563. Its current version consists of 129 questions and it's divided into three parts and it goes this way. Part one of the misery of man, part two of the redemption of man, and part three of the gratitude due from man. In the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, they pin this question. In the life, pardon me, in life and in death, what is your only comfort? In life and in death, what is your only comfort? I want to pose a similar question this evening. And I want to answer it with the, the question, or Yeah, I want to answer the question with the first Heidelberg Catechism answer. And this is the question I want to pose. What is true and lasting hope? True and lasting hope is this. That I'm not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things work together for my salvation. They must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. And makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. I just have to ask the question of you all. Do you belong to the Lord Jesus? Do you know yourself to be owned by the Lord Jesus Christ? Body and soul, life and death. I'm not not asking, have you committed yourself to Him? I'm not asking, are you being obedient to Him? 
I'm not asking, do you read your Bible? I'm not asking, do you pray at night? I'm not asking, are you raising your children with biblical convictions? What I'm asking is, do you know yourself to be owned life and death, body and soul, by the Lord Jesus Christ? Has Christ invaded your soul through His Holy Spirit and brought you into the joy of our great eternal Father? Do you suffer as the world suffers? Or do you suffer under the blessedness of particular Christian sufferings? Do you live with both eyes toward the glory that is to be revealed to you? Or do you have one eye on the world and one eye on Christ? Are you living with gratitude under the sovereign hand of Christ? Who made all things, he subjected them to futility. And who will be returning again to swallow them up in his own imperishable glory. Well, my hope for today is the same as Frederick III's was back in the 1560s. He hoped that his people would be united under the truth and power of God's word. And my hope is that we would be united under the power of God's word. My hope is that if we are half-heartedly following Jesus, that we would repent. That we would stop having one eye on the world and one on Jesus. Rather, that we would take both of our eyes and firmly fix them on the hope that is to be revealed to us. Because there is a time soon coming when all that is temporary will be swallowed up in the eternal glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if, if you haven't already, turn with me to Romans eight eighteen through 27 and I'll pray for us. Romans 8, 18 through 27. Father, we come to you in the precious name of your son, Jesus. And it's him whom we trust. It's him who we're placing all our faith and our hope and our trust in. We're asking God that through the power of your eternal spirit, you would meet with us tonight, that you would draw us near to you, that your word would land on us like only it can when your spirit gives us the help that we need, that you would work in us to know you and to enjoy you, that you would work in us to be changed both now and evermore. God, we thank you for your precious word. We pray, Lord, help us to worship you through it. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Romans eight eighteen through 27. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. 
Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Well, if we were to wrap verses 18 through 27 up into one tight, concise statement, it would sound something like this. The Christian is compelled to live a Christ-like life on earth by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God, who works in us the assurance, comfort, courage, and conviction of the hope of the inheritance of the imperishable glory of Christ in the life to come. I want to say this once more. It's a long sentence, I know. But I want it to be heard and to be understood. The Christian is compelled to live a Christ-like life on earth by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. Who works in us the assurance, comfort, courage, and conviction of the hope of the inheritance of the imperishable glory of Christ in the life to come? Now, in order for us to move forward, we first need to move backward. It's been some time since we were in uh, the verses before us up until Romans 18 or 8, 17. So we need to move backwards. Verse 17 makes a transition for us, and we need to cover that transition. The transition that is made is a transition from sonship to heirship. So read verse 17 with me. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Verse 17 begins for us to make the transition from the life of the Christian on earth, which is characterized by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, to the life of the Christian in heaven, which is characterized by being fully immersed in the imperishable glory of the Lord Jesus. Now we have the first fruits of the Spirit groaning and crying out, Abba, Father, then we shall be inseparable from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. Now we are but a pale reflection of our Lord. Then we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. The Christian lives the Christ-like life now, imperfectly, and will live the Christ-like life then, perfectly. Verse 18 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The Christian will suffer and endure Christ. Pardon me. The Christian will suffer and endure with Christ in like manner as Christ suffered in life and endured the cross. When reading this verse, you have to ask a couple of questions. First, what kind of suffering is Paul speaking of? And second, what kind of glory is Paul speaking of? First, what kind of sufferings? 
The Christian life is the life of suffering, particular Christian sufferings. And because the Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, they suffer in ways that universal man cannot suffer. Ours is the suffering of treasures in jars of clay. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Particular Christian sufferings are the sufferings of Christ in you. The world can suffer in all kinds of ways, and so can we. But the world cannot suffer in that way. The world cannot have the sufferings of the life of God in the soul of man. That is unique to us. And it ought to comfort us to know that when we're suffering under the unique suffering of hatred of sin, that that's the indwelling spirit. It ought to comfort us to know that when we're suffering under the unique suffering of intense longing for the nearness of God, that that's a suffering that the world cannot share with us. It is unique to, it is particular to Christian suffering. The next thing we need to ask is this. What kind of glory will be revealed? It is the knowledge of the glory of the resurrected Christ which produces in us the endurance to suffer well in Christ. Consider with me Jesus who is known as the suffering servant of God. He suffered and endured the cross for the joy of entering into His glory. What kind of glory? His resurrection glory. Consider Hebrews 12.2 with me and John 17. Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And John 17 shows us that Jesus approached His crucifixion and as He did so, chief among His thoughts was that of His own glory. It was that of entering back into the glory that He shared with His Father since before the world began. Quote, John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life that they know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That's a specific glory. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus endured the cross in the powerful assurance, comfort, and conviction of the hope of His own resurrected glory. Paul's ex exhortation in verses 18 is to endure our sufferings as Christ endured His sufferings in the powerful assurance, comfort, and conviction of the hope of the resurrection glory 
of Christ. See, Christ considered that the weight of His sufferings, which were far greater than all we could even imagine, were far outweighed by the glory that was set before Him. Therefore, Christian, think much on the glory that is to be revealed to you. Think much on the future glory of resurrected Christ that you will be eternally immersed in. Think much on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Think much on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which says this, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Think much on Revelation 1.7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. And think much on Acts chapter 1. Think much on 1 Thessalonians 4. And by the power of God's Spirit, put Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14 into practice. Believe that you shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Verses 19 through 23 tell us this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly as adoption, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The Christian will live... Christ-like in this world by being assured, comforted, and convicted of the sovereignty of Christ over creation and sin's corruption. And just like the first verse that we looked into, we, we have to ask a question of the text. And the question is this. Who was it that subjected creation to futility. Well, Genesis 3 tells us, quote, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, 
Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for you. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And we know from John 1 that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. So who is it? that subjected the creation to futility. Genesis 3 tells us that it's the pre-incarnate Son of God. The pre-incarnate Son of God cursed the serpent. He cursed the woman. He cursed the man. And because of their sin, He cursed the creation. Jesus subjected the creation to futility. Jesus is sovereign over creation and the curse of creation. He proves this in His incarnation through His many miracles and the manifestations of power in calming the sea and the wind and the waves. Also, His walking on water. But He most powerfully displays His sovereignty over creation by subjecting it to futility and then setting it free from its bondage to corruption through His incarnation, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. In His commentary on Romans... C.E.B. Cranfield says this of Jesus' sovereignty over creation. There is little doubt that Paul had in mind the judgment related to Genesis 3.17 and 19, which includes the words, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. Therefore, helping us to understand Paul's meaning to be subhuman creation has been subjected to the frustration not being uh, the frustration of not being able to properly fulfill the purpose of its existence. God having appointed that without man it should not be made perfect. Through the sovereign Son of God freely chose to not obliterate humankind when he rebelled against him, but rather he chose to subject all of creation to the corruption and vanity of sin. So that through the sure hope of the resurrection, all things would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The eternal plan of God here begins to become more and more clear as we see that it was the sovereign will of God to subjugate all things to weakness so that through the redemption of the sons of God, all things might be raised in power 1 Corinthians 15 makes a similar point as this showing us even more clearly the sovereignty of God over the fall. 
the cursing of the first Adam so that he might become the second Adam and through the resurrection of the dead clothe all of creation in his eternal glory. 1 Corinthians 15. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And I ask again, what is the Christian's only hope in life and in death? That we shall bear the image of the man of heaven because we have been owned by him, because we belong to him. The Son of God who is the second Adam, sovereign over sin and creation, and sovereign over salvation, and sovereign over glorification, subjected all things to futility so that He Himself might take on flesh and become like us in every way and take His wonderful self to the cross and there die under the full wrath of God that was due sinners like us so that He might be subjected to the corruption of death so that He might raise from the grave and be the firstborn from amongst the dead so that in Him we might have a hope. A hope of glory. A hope of resurrection. Verses 24-27 through 27 tell us this. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groaning, too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. As immense as the glory of God is for us to experience now on earth because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, it will be far greater of an experience when Christ returns for us. Now this isn't because God's glory is going to get any greater. It's not because God's glory is going to expand. It's not because God's glory is going to change. But rather because we will be changed. In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable, this perishable body will put on the imperishable 
And this mortal body must put on immortality. Now the Spirit of God, the Spirit that God has placed in us, the Holy Spirit, the life of God, yearns for us to be clothed with our eternal garments. He intercedes for us according to the will of God that we would be conformed to the image of God's beloved Son. God's Spirit causes us to hope. And hope is surety. Just as sure as Christ took on flesh and died on the cross. Just as sure as Christ was raised from the earthen tomb. Just as sure as Christ is now seated at the right hand of God. Just as sure as Christ has went before us into glory. We shall soon after follow. This is the hope that gives us strong encouragement in the face of persecution and sufferings. God's eternal plan of the creation of a new humanity and the making new of all things is as sure as God's own promise. We just await the consummation of such things which are too wonderful to imagine. And we take comfort in our God who says our sufferings are light in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that awaits all who have been covered in the blood of His dear Son. And we have been sealed by His precious Spirit. The Christian is called and empowered by God's Spirit to live in light of a greater reality than what we can presently see. This, in essence, is hope. Living in the assurance, conviction, comfort of God, knowing that our glory is sure, that our God loves us and that we will never be separated from His love Rather, we will be absolutely enveloped in His love and glory when we see Him face to face. Not because His glory gets greater, but because we will see Him as He is. Because we will be like Him. Hope is the place where assurance, conviction, courage, and comfort meet in the soul of the Christian, to produce a Christward life. Hope is no mere human emotion. In its most glorious form, hope is a gift that God gives to the believer when He imputes the righteous life of the Lord Jesus Christ to their soul and seals them with His precious Holy Spirit. Hope is our right and powerful reaction to the eternal reign of Christ. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Father in Heaven, we thank You for the blessed hope of the glory of the children of God. We pray, God, that you would turn our eyes upon Jesus. 
that we might look full in His wonderful face. That the transient things of this world will grow ever strangely dim in light of His resurrection glory and grace. We ask these things in the name of Your Son. May God graciously grant us to live in the fullness of this hope.